Lord, we thank you for being the great God that you are. And you are worthy of our praise and our worship, our devotion, all that we are. I pray now that as we continue, Lord, to worship you in the understanding of your word, that you will pour out your spirit upon us in a very special way. Help us, Lord, to hear your word in a meaningful way for each of us, that it may be applied to our lives. I pray, Lord, that in this I may decrease so that your word in you may increase. I ask this in the very name of Jesus, through the power of your spirit. Amen. If you know me very well, you know that I come from Chicago and then Berwyn. And of course, that's a different culture where I came from than it is out here. And humor is often backhanded, not quite the same way. So one of the things that I like to say about myself humorously is that as a pastor, God has given me two very special ministry gifts. The spiritual gift of stupidity and stubbornness. You may not think much about that, but that is a prophecy that my mother and father often prophesied over me as a child. The truth is, I say it because I'm too stupid not to know when something is impossible and too stubborn not to give up until it's completed. It's my backhanded way of saying, I have faith in God to do more than I or you can imagine. Right? And I'm not going to give up on God until God brings it about or until He makes it clear to me that I need to stop. Today, we're going to see Paul refuse loving advice. Friends, co-workers, Fellow believers are going to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And he is going to refuse their advice and counsel. Is he stubborn? Or is he resolute? Well, the dictionary says this about stubborn. Stubborn is having dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position. Synonyms for it are words like Obstinate, headstrong, willful, pig-headed. And if you're Italian, testadura. For a while there, I thought that was one of my names. Resolute, according to the dictionary, is being purposeful, determined, and unwavering. Synonyms for are words like determined and resolved and unswerving. Both of these words, stubborn and resolute, convey a sense of unyielding determination. But they differ. One holds on to self-determination above everything else. The other holds on to fulfilling a purpose above everything else. Paul 
was being resolute about fulfilling his purpose, even if it meant that he must suffer, be imprisoned, and die. Now the big idea for us today is this. If we are to communicate the gospel to others, then we must be willing and resolute about entering into suffering. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you now to turn to Acts 21. We're not going to read the entire chapter. It's 36 verses. But, I want to take us through the entire storyline. Paul and his ministry partners are now returning to Jerusalem. And they have chosen to go by boat. And if we look up here on the map, we can see that Paul is on his way home. When he gets to Miletus, that's um, right there by Samos and Kos in between, he ends up calling the elders from Ephesus to come and talk to him. And he talks to them from there. Then he will travel to Syria and um, onboard the boat at Tyre. He'll take it to Caesarea and then he'll finish this journey by land to Jerusalem. When Paul finally gets to the port of Tyre, there's a seven-day layover. And he goes and seeks out local disciples. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever traveled out of the country, right, alone, not knowing anyone. Perhaps in a country that is very unlike our country. Perhaps in a country that isn't necessarily safe. I have. I've traveled to Nigeria and I've traveled to Guatemala. And I'll tell you one of the sweetest things that I experienced was to have community with other believers. I felt like I was with family. I felt loved and cared for, and I was at ease, and I did not feel out of my element at all because of them. Now, I want you to know something. We have some people here today, very special people from BMA, the Czech Republic. Ladies, would you stand up and let us acknowledge you here? Yeah. And, and I hope... And we all know that's part of our global ministry partners, but I will hope that after the service today, are you guys going to be at the picnic too? Yeah, I hope you check in with them at the picnic and welcome them, make them feel comfortable and loved and cared for. I think it's a, it's a tremendous thing. So Paul stays with these local disciples. And what's amazing is, how far the gospel has traveled in just a few short years. And it has been established throughout the Mediterranean area and beyond the ports. And there are communities of believers all over. And Paul is able to stay with them. And one of the things we read about in Acts 21 is that through the Spirit, these believers in Tyre, 
discern that Paul is going to be in danger. So they warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Dr. Luke doesn't make a big deal about it, but he notes it in his historical account in chapter 21. These local believers escort Paul and his companions to the ship, and they pray with them before they go. They cover them with prayer. And then Paul and his companions leave for Caesarea. When they arrive at Caesarea, it will be a place that they will stay for a while. And they stay with Philip the Evangelist. Now we first meet Philip the Evangelist in Acts 6. He's one of the very first deacons of the church in Jerusalem. We also meet him again in Acts 8 as he's returning to Caesarea where he makes his home. He is spreading the gospel throughout Samaria and the gospel now is leaving Jerusalem and Judah and it's going out into Samaria and it is finding and taking root there because of Philip's efforts. We also learn that Philip is the one who meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And he baptizes him, introduces him to Jesus, the Messiah. We are told by Dr. Luke that Philip has four unmarried daughters. They all have the gift of prophecy. Now in the early church, prophecy was one of the important gifts. And that was for several reasons, but in part because they didn't have the New Testament to help them. It's become a less important gift today, but it's still important and it still functions. And I've heard that gift be described differently than how we think of it in the New Testament. I've heard it described as a perceiver gift. And what that means is that people with this gift, they see underneath the surface of things. Honestly, they dig down and then they tell us what they see. It's irritating. It is. Sometimes it even sounds judgmental. My wife has that gift, believe it or not. One of the things I told her as we started ministry together, I said, honey, I love that you tell me the truth. I love that it unsettles me. Do not do this in the church. People will think that you are judgmental. Just use it to pray for things until you figure out how to deal with it. Right? And she did. And we have people with that perceiver gift as well. In fact, um, when we listen to Pastor Tim, oftentimes he pulls that gift out. We've heard it when he's talking especially about social issues, or we heard it in the series of Amos. He was downright irritating. (laughs) But I love it. (laughs) For the Lord, right? Okay. Now, if you have your Bibles open, let's turn to Acts 21. We're going to see 
the importance of this prophetic gift and probably why Dr. Luke mentions it. Let's read from verses 10 through 14 together. And as we do, what I want you to notice is that Dr. Luke uses the pronoun we. He is referring to himself and the other ministry partners of Paul when he does. So let's read it. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he, Paul, would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the Lord's will be done. Now let me ask, does this account remind you of anything in the Gospels? Does it remind you of Jesus with Peter? When Jesus says to his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem. And there I will suffer, and I will die, and I will rise again. And Peter says to Jesus, may it not be so, Lord, because Jesus is the Messiah. That they would treat him like this, Peter can't even imagine. In fact, the Gospels say that Peter rebuked Jesus. That's a big deal for a follower of a rabbi to do, a disciple of a rabbi. And Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now as we look at these verses and how they unfold, we're going to, I hope, realize how to better our handles ourselves when it comes to being resolute for the sake of the gospel. The first thing that we see in these verses is the love and care of people for Paul as they stubbornly urged him to change course and not go to Jerusalem. This is the second time that Paul is urged not to go to Jerusalem. This is not just Philip telling him this, not just his daughters telling him this, not local believers just telling him this. This is Dr. Luke and the other co-workers as well. I would imagine that they can't picture life without Paul 
the apostle to the Gentiles. And they're probably thinking, you know, what is God doing? God can't be doing this. What are we going to do without Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles? They felt for good reason that Paul needed to be warned and Paul needed to be counseled. And so they provided that for Paul. I want to stop for a minute now and do a brief application point. I have been in full-time ministry for almost 40 years. And certainly in ministry beyond 40 years. And I have seen lots of things in the church. And I have seen this situation occur in the church around decisions that are made in the church. And let me explain. Sometimes there are decisions made by the leadership of the church that don't square up with some people's expectations. They just can't understand how God might be in that decision. And it's hard for them to let it go. But I've also seen it the reverse way, not only in the churches I've been in, but in the pastor who was my mentor. And I've talked to other pastors and seen the same thing. When the congregation makes a decision that they don't agree with, they can't imagine that God would be in that decision. What I've discovered is that both parties, decision makers and those who struggle with decisions, often feel resolute. It is based upon principle for them. It is not just stubbornness. I believe that the church does well to follow the same course of action that we read in the text today, which allowed God to restore unity to these believers. So let's move on. What's the second thing we see? We see that Paul gently and even lovingly corrects them. Through this, the Holy Spirit is able to bring unity and restore unity. Paul does not admonish them harshly. He gently and lovingly corrects them. He practices what he preached to the Galatians where he says, brothers, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word is meekness. It means strength under control. Within the body, we are to treat one another with respect and gentleness. I believe outside of the body as believers, we are to treat all people with respect and gentleness as far as we can. We live in a world today where there is great vitriol. And everybody likes to characterize things to the extreme to make their point. So we got politicians comparing other politicians to Nazis. It's crazy. And we have politicians comparing other politicians to being you know, completely unreasonable and unhinged. They call each other names, and all they do is try to diminish the other person and elevate themselves. Paul does none of that. He speaks to them as equals. 
Now, why are we to treat each other with respect and gentleness in the church? Well, I found out a long time ago that there was a passage that helped me to deal with it as a pastor. When I had some very real things going on in the church, difficult things, and this is what God brought me as I was praying to Him about it, how to really manage it, navigate it. I wanted to be the old middle linebacker that I was in college. I just wanted to take it head on. I was a wrestler. I wanted to go after it. Just wrestle it down. I'm my father's son. And my father was a man who said, I can wait 25 years. I was going to be that man. But God showed me that disagreements often come between well-intentioned people. People who actually love each other and should love each other. And this was the text that God gave me. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see, when there is an opportunity for us to be divided, these forces of darkness want to sow confusion and discord. It's part of what they're happy to do. Because if they can cause mistrust within the body, then they can disrupt the church, its witness to the world, and render it less effective. And one of the things that I found where this happens is when the church starts talking about us and them within the same body. There is no us and them. There is just we. And that's how Paul was handling this. So what do we do if we find ourselves in that situation? Well, let me tell you what I think we do. The first thing you do is don't shut down. Don't just stuff stuff down. It isn't healthy and it isn't meant to be. That's not how God wants us to handle ourselves. He wants us to keep listening and talking with one another. He wants us to process this and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts. And we're going to see exactly what happens with that as we continue talking about this unfolding and how the Spirit brings unity. Take notice that Paul's gentleness is expressed by not elevating himself as more important or as a parent over children. And by not diminishing them in any way. But rather, Paul appeals to them personally. He says, stop this. Please stop weeping and pleading. You're breaking my heart. You're making it much harder for me than it already is. I'm ready to go where the Lord is leading me, even imprisonment and suffering and death. Then take notice of how the Spirit uses this to bring and restore unity. Instead of them continuing to 
insist that Paul must change and agree. And the text seems to share that they're pushing hard against Paul and Paul's resisting hard. Instead of insisting that Paul change and agree, they listened and they realized that the ultimate decision lay with Paul. And as a result, they needed to relent. But it wasn't over for them yet because they loved Paul and they cared about Paul. So what did they do? They submitted themselves to the Lord. What is it that we read? We ceased. We got that? We ceased and let the will of the Lord be done. See, we need to learn to keep bringing things to God. Letting go is not easy for us. We're control freaks. That's part of the whole sin nature. And as we learn to live our life, we have to learn to let go of control. We have to learn to keep bringing it up to God. And we as a church have to bring things up to God. And when we do, unity is maintained and restored because we trust God to work it out. Instead of trusting ourselves to be smarter or trusting others to be smarter, we give it to the Lord. The third thing we see in this text is Paul's resolve to be about fulfilling his life's mission. Spreading the gospel, even if it means that he must suffer, be imprisoned and die. Paul is resolute. He is willing to face hardship. Willing to go to prison. Willing to even die. Paul said to the Ephesian elders before he got on that first boat, He said to them, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Paul understood that living out the gospel required a willingness to suffer. We're not talking here about being a masochist. We're not talking here about being some unhealthy human being, but we're talking about somebody who is resolute in his mission to serve the Lord. And as a result, a willingness to even suffer. Most of us think of suffering just in terms of enduring persecution or rejection or hardship, and even death for the gospel. And it certainly is true. It has been down through the centuries and it continues to be today. Paul understood that this lay ahead for him. But I've been thinking recently about suffering. It's something that has concerned me, especially over the last 10 years of my life. And as I've considered it, 
and been doing ministry in affluent areas, I've wondered what it means for us. Especially as I consider what Paul says, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But most of us have at least the physical means to not suffer, right? Like others. And we live in a country where it is supposedly illegal to persecute us for our religious faith. So how is it that we suffer? While we may not suffer as egregiously as other believers, I am totally convinced that we suffer also and that that suffering is required of us. As a pastor, I am most often called upon when it comes to counsel to hear people's hurting hearts. To listen to their pain. To for, for a moment offer some relief as they just pour out their sadness and their hurt. So they're not alone with it. And then to be able to bring it to the Lord. When people are hurting, the most common thing I hear is I want it to stop. I just want to give up. I just want to turn off. I don't want to feel this anymore. But that's the thing we must not do. Because we need to be willing to suffer with Jesus if we're going to rise with Him. I think of this in my own term, not some great theologian's term. I didn't read it anywhere, so don't, you know, if you're going to text me a question about where'd you get this, I'm just telling you this is just one pastor's reflections. I call it redemptive suffering. And when I talk with people who are hurting, I tell them that God has brought you to a place where you have an opportunity to enter into redemptive suffering. We have to be willing to suffer for the sake of our gospel. And that gospel is that our God is enough to carry us through all things. We heard Lisa talk today about Spafford, who lost his entire family except for his wife through tragedies and all that he had. And yet, it is well with his soul. We must not turn off. We must not close our hearts. We must not run away. We must bring it to God and allow God to help us with it. That's the sanctifying, redemptive nature of it. You know, when we have family members who make choices against the gospel, who make fun of us or treat us poorly, that hurts. 
You can cut them off. Not going to deal with them. But that's not the gospel. And that's not what God wants of us. I can't tell you the number of people who grieve after the loss of a loved one. And for some people, that is a deep, intimate grief and it takes more time than people are willing to give. And they're like, you know, I talk to my friends and nobody wants to be around me anymore. Because they don't want to hear that person's pain anymore. And the reason they don't want to hear that person's pain anymore is because it pains them. Sometimes this pain occurs when people cross our paths who are very broken, deeply wounded, deeply wounded by life. And they have these self-defeating patterns. And it's painful to watch them over and over and over again put themselves in such horrible situations. It's easier just to Turn our hearts off. It's easier not to care. We feel this same thing when you walk down the streets of Chicago. People are sitting at every corner with a hand up. And if you're one of those people like me who think, I wonder if this person really has a problem or not. I wonder if this is just maybe they're lazy or is it some form of mental illness or something else? What tragedy happened? Something. This happens when people we know has a long-term illness or a terminal illness and their care takes a long time. And we watch them deteriorate. And it hurts. I came here in 2012, May. In September of that year, my mom fell and broke her hip. She was already struggling with dementia and diabetes. She never was able to really recover from that hip. She couldn't walk by herself and she required medical attention. And so, while she had lived with my sister for 15 years, the only thing we could do at this point was to put her in a nursing home. We found one that was relatively close to my home and about the same distance from where my sister worked. And for 18 months, that was my mom's home until the Lord called her to her heavenly home. And I started out visiting my mom three or four times a week. Hard to do with everything going on, but I was determined to do it. And then it moved down to just three times a week. And then it was two or three times a week. And then it was twice a week. And then there were some weeks that I missed. 
never more than one, but I still missed it, or I went only once. It was so hard to watch my mom. One of the kindest people to me to see what was happening to her. And let me tell you about this lady who has dementia, right? She's not sure who everybody is, all this stuff. The last day of her life, she's sitting in bed, she can't speak. And my daughter sat on the bed with her and gave her a hug. And my mom evidently was trying to speak, but my daughter said, do you want all of us, you want to give all of us a hug? She said, I think that's what mom wants. And that was exactly what she wanted. She wanted to hug us and say goodbye. I love my mom. My mom sat there and just went, uh, she went, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's how she comforted herself. So I took advantage of that and said, Mom, am I your favorite? (laughs) Which my sister and my cousin had to sit there and endure. If I was struggling to keep my heart open with my mom, boy, it's going to be something I'm going to struggle with with people I don't feel that close to. That's just the reality. But that's the gospel, folks. That's what it means to be Jesus to others. To do what doesn't come easy for us. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. That's how we suffer here. We suffer here in the ways that we hear from the pulpit about how we can engage in in these social issues. Sharing of our material wealth, too. Trying to provide opportunities for others. We even saw this redemptive suffering in the Apostle Paul. Although, I don't want you to construe that that's what Paul meant when he said he was prepared to suffer for the gospel, but he pleaded with them because it hurt him to see them hurting so. So how do you do this? In a practical way, I'd like to say, I got all the answers. I don't. I only know a few things that seem to work. And they don't work all the time. But they do work when the Lord is in them. And the first thing is you need to pray. Keep looking to God. The second thing is you need to keep your heart open. Resist shutting down. The third thing is you need to pray for the other person. And don't disconnect unless the Lord leads you to do it. Now, some of you have been in very, very difficult situations, abusive. And I want to say, 
I am not talking about situations where you are being abused. Okay? You can go to God for that answer. Right? And I'm not talking about enabling others by caring for them. Right? But I'm talking as a general principle, keep your heart open. This is a redemptive quality of suffering that grows us, matures us, helps us become more like Jesus. It's a witness to the world when they see us like that. It's a witness to the person we're connected with. And it's a witness to God's spirit and love for us that he can help us with these things. In the least, it is a witness to the genuineness of our faith. At most, it is a witness that causes others to embrace the gospel. Well, Acts 21, I want to finish the storyline very quickly. Paul and his friends left Caesarea. They went to Jerusalem. They reported to the church at Jerusalem, praising God and celebrating, and the whole church did. And then the church warned Paul that he was the target not only of the Jews, but of the Judaizers who were part of the believing community. And we've heard about Judaizers before as we've taught through different books of the Bible. And this is what it says in Acts 21.21. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and walk according to our customs. Of course, this is not true, but boy, people get angered and stirred up. And the church recommended that Paul publicly demonstrated a reverence for the law. In the end, that plan doesn't work. And while Paul is worshiping at the temple, the crowd see him, drag him out, begin to beat him mercilessly. The Roman soldiers see the chaos. They come and grab Paul, take him away. They literally got to pick him up and carry him out of there because the crowd is so thick and wants to do so much harm to Paul. And they arrest Paul and the chapter ends. And next week, next week we're going to find out what happens. So come back. What I hope that you see today is that if we are to live out the gospel, then we have to be willing to suffer. We have to be resolute about it. Even the kind of suffering that's just keeping our heart open to others and remaining connected with them. God uses this as a witness to the world and to others. He grows us so that we mature and become more like Jesus. Can I hear an amen? amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for Paul's example. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We pray that you will use us for the gospel. Help us, Lord, to remain engaged even when our hearts hurt that we might do it for your kingdom purposes.
that you might use it for your kingdom purposes, not only in us, but in others. For we pray this in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said? Just grab a quick seat if you would. I guess when it rains, it pours. I got a bunch of questions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but a couple of them kind of grouped together nicely. So I'll take one of those and uh, another one. Um, There were some questions about verse 4 in which the believers at Tyre Tyre are um, come to knowledge through the spirit of what's happening with Paul. And, you know, the question comes, do you think they misunderstood the leading of the spirit when they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Nope, not at all. I'm not sure they knew what they were supposed to do with it. I think they just came to the knowledge, and this is my take on it. Uh, I can't, you know, the Bible doesn't say this is exactly what happened there. But my take on it is they come to this awareness that Paul is going to Jerusalem because that's, Paul's aware of it. The Spirit's told him about it. If anything, that knowledge when they speak it, if Paul says, yeah, I got the same message. Then they say, well, we don't want you to go. That would be a normal kind of response. But in hearing that Paul says, well, this is what I need to be, then I would think that they would absolutely be supported and they would understand God's doing a work. So that's how I would understand that particular verse. I don't think we always understand what's going on when the Spirit speaks to us. I can tell you I don't. But I get pointed in a direction and I am trusting God to show me and I'm holding everything loosely, not walking with this tight grip. Now the Holy Spirit said we're going to do this. I don't know. But this is where we start walking. The Holy Spirit will reveal it. And we just need to learn to wait on God's time. You know, as evangelicals, we like to put everything in a nice, neat box, wrap it up, put a bow on it, and we're done. And God just loves to keep us walking with Him. All right, one more. Luke uses the word we, and that is among those who relent to Paul's leadership. Unity is obviously a high priority for the church, and this is surely the salient point of the passage. Are there criteria and a place for questioning the decisions of church leadership? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have the Word of God that tells us we can do that. The Word of God gives us principles, and it tells leaders how they should be acting. So we have those kinds of things. What oftentimes happens in the church, though, is that the principle isn't being broken, but the application we may disagree on. And so what everybody wants is my application is the right application, and my application is the right application. Well, guess what? We can have differing applications and differing opinions about it. And honestly, I'm going to be clear with you. I think if we understand community right, we would see it like a marriage. I got a great marriage with my wife. It's the fourth. I've told you that before, right? But I listen to her. 
She doesn't always agree with me. I find it hard to believe. And I know I'm a lot smarter than her. But I most often relent to her. Because she has something to add to the discussion. Remember what I said to you. Don't just stuff things down. Talk. Speak. Leaders need to listen. We need to look at it. As I said, people are principled within the body, most often. So we're going to learn and we're going to grow together. And the Spirit of God's going to do a work. And are there other principles? There is truth and there is love. And truth without love is just legalism and brutal. And love without truth is just enabling and folly. So we need to remember these things. Thank you for the great questions you guys have. Would you rise for the benediction?